Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. And by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we've recorded this podcast and from where you are listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us, and we encourage you to do the same. So today we are talking about diabetes with writer, science communications professional, and podcast producer and host, Krista Lamb, who recently released her book, Beyond Banting, Decoding Canada's Diabetes Research Superstars. During our conversation, we discuss the different types of diabetes that present, the stigmas associated with diabetes, and the impact it has on mental health. Together, we also explore how we are currently seeing this disability on film and television and what we'd like to see more of on screen in the future. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. Krista, thank you so much for joining us on Brains. It is so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, We like to start things off by, you know, maybe the hardest or easiest question. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a science communicator living in Toronto. I am the author of the book Beyond Banting. I host a number of podcasts and I am lucky enough that I get to talk to scientists and about scientists as my day job. And I really, really love that. I met you actually through Hot Docs, which is so cool. And that's why we're here today, because not only do I also love science, but I was so fascinated with your work around diabetes, which is our topic of today's discussion. So just to help people who may not know, what is diabetes and what is the difference between type 1 and type 2? Sure. And first things first, thank you for asking that because so many people don't realize that there is a difference between type 2 and type 1 diabetes. And I think it's really important. So diabetes is basically when your pancreas doesn't work properly for different reasons. So for example, if you have type 1 diabetes, which used to be called juvenile diabetes because it mostly presents in children and young adults, although it can happen to anybody at any age, That's something where your body is basically attacking your beta cells, which are the cells that make insulin. And so it kills off some of them, makes it difficult to regenerate them, lots of things. And it's a very much an autoimmune disorder. So it's not something that you can change or modify and you have to be on insulin. So if you have type 2 diabetes, which is the type of diabetes most people are familiar with because a lot of people have it, it's far more prevalent than type 1. One of my favorite science communicators, Dr. Alice Chang, once described it as when your pancreas kind of poops out. And that's sort of a good way of describing it. It's not working properly. You maybe have insulin resistance. You have things that aren't working properly. So you need to take medication or potentially change the way that your lifestyle is. But like many things, type 2 diabetes is very complicated because it can be caused by many, many, many factors, um, including genetics and all sorts of things. So both types very complicated, but different. Mm -hmm. Why did you write your award-winning book, Beyond Banting? Well, that's really interesting because a lot of people um, don't realize I don't live with diabetes um, and I do not research diabetes, but I became incredibly passionate when I was working at Diabetes Canada about learning about the research. I thought, oh my gosh, what is happening is so incredible. And so I started doing the Diabetes Canada podcast when I was working there in 2017. And we were really talking about, you know, quick hits. What are people doing in research? What's happening? And I was like, wow, there is so much. Mm. And I wanted to tell those stories in a more fulsome way. So I decided I would see if anyone was interested in a nerdy little book about diabetes research in Canada and all of the amazing things that have happened since Banting. And I started researching that book and I realized, wow, there's tons, but a lot of it was done by people who were homogenous. There were people that had that opportunity that had that opportunity because of the time that they lived in. So I decided to also tell the stories of some of the women, um, some of the people of color, some of the more diverse stories. And in the process, I really wanted to make it something that anybody could understand. So you didn't have to be a scientist. You didn't have to understand science. You didn't have to know anything about diabetes. You could read this book and you could be inspired by the science and you can be inspired by the people. And I'm really hopeful that future scientists will look at it and be like, oh, 
I see myself reflected in this book and I can maybe do this because I think this work is so important and it's fascinating. And I learned a ton. And I hope that people who read it also learn a ton. Can you just explain? I, I don't know the reference of Banting. <laughs> oh, fair enough. So 2021 was the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin, which happened right here in Toronto. Banting, Best, Collip, and McLeod at the University of Toronto were responsible for this life-changing, life-saving discovery. We made this gigantic fuss about this incredible discovery, as we should yes. have. Many of my friends are alive because of it. <laughs> um, but it's not a cure. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely has made it so that people don't die, uh, which, again, awesome. But there's so much more that comes along with it. And so much of that work is being done in Canada and we don't even know about it. So it was something that I was really excited about because we did this one amazing thing. And I wanted to remind people that we did lots of other things too. I don't know if this is fact, 100% fact, but I've been told that Edmonton is really big with research. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> I met a woman who like came from England to specifically do research in, in Edmonton because the, I think it was the islet transplant. Yeah. There's an entire chapter in my book about the Edmonton Protocol, which is the first successful islet transplants in the world. And Edmonton is the epicenter of islet transplants. And it is where the world's leading experts often go to learn about islet transplantation. So in the book, I was able to talk to the wonderful scientists who were at the, the center of that, um, Dr. James Shapiro, who also came from England to uh, to do his studies and ended up working on that. And uh, Ray Rajat, who is the other person who was really at the core of that. And also to talk about some of the incredible cascade effects that have happened since then. For example, many people don't don't know that some of the people who donate their islet cells, you, you do have to die and donate your organs. That's why we don't have a lot of them <laughs> to do an islet transplant. Their tissues aren't usable. So there's a wonderful program now that is actually out of Alberta that is making sure that those tissues go to great use in the study and the research of diabetes. And it has had huge implications in the science in a positive way. And so Edmonton continues to uh, punch above its weight and amazing researchers there. Well, I'm proud of my hometown, Edmonton. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, wait. Okay, then another question. Okay, tell me about the islet. Because I'm sorry, I feel like I know. We, we're not experts. As we are, so. we're not, you're so not experts in this. Fair. And I again, I also, I went to journalism school because I was not good at math or science, but <laughs> the fact that I ended up here is, is wild to me. So basically, islet cells are beta cells and alpha cells, which are the cells in your pancreas that create insulin and keep your pancreas running. And so if you have diabetes, those cells aren't working properly or they have been killed off by your autoimmune system. And so we need to regenerate them in some way, which is what some people are working on the research. We can't do that yet, but we're trying. The other idea is that we are going to try and transplant them. So if someone dies, they donate their organs, they have viable islets, then you can transplant them into the liver which is really weird, through a portal vein in the liver, I know, not into the pancreas, <laughs> but smarter people than me have figured this out. And so they're able to do a transplant. And once you have that transplant, then it is not necessarily a cure for type 1 diabetes, but especially for people who have hypoglycemia unawareness, which is when you don't know when you're going low. And so you could just pass out these sorts of things really helps to regulate your blood sugars. But of course, we don't have a lot of islets available. Uh, it's a very, very limited supply. So very few people are able to get that. But that's why very smart people are now trying to figure out using stem cells and things like that about ways that we can create islet cells in the lab. Very cool. Are islet transplants done for kids? Is that a thing or not yet? No, unfortunately. And that's one of the other reasons that we're really hopeful that some of these other um processes that are being researched now will be viable. Because the thing is, you have to go on immunosuppressants. And that's something that you have to be on for the rest of your life. And those can have really awful side effects. And it's not something you'd want to do um, with a young child. But that's why in the book, I talk about Dr. Christina Nostro, who is absolutely incredible. She came from Italy and now is working in Toronto. And she's working on creating stem cell-derived beta cells and looking at things like this that down the road, and we're looking probably significantly down the road, might be a more viable option for, for children. Ooh, so cool. Okay. So 
we will talk more about diabetes and mental health. But first, because this is a show about <laughs> film and television and things, so <laughs> and things, <laughs> um, we'd love to talk about diabetes representation in film and television. I know one myself that sticks out, but maybe we'll see what you say. Like, what do you think has been a really good representation? So it was funny when you asked about this in, in sort of the pre-interview, because it's hard. There are so few good repre- representations. There are so few accurate representations. And as a person not living with diabetes, but who is surrounded by people living with diabetes, I think that's a disservice. And so the one thing I will say was a really great thing, and I heard about this from everybody, was Turning Red, the Disney movie. Because even though it's just a small smidge of a character having a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor, on their arm, it was representation. And it was representation that was not as someone who was sick, not as someone who was other. It was just another kid in the schoolyard who just happened to have this thing. And I heard from so many of my friends who live with diabetes that that was meaningful because that was something that showcased diabetes not as something that you suffer from and that language is awful. It's not something that you are othered by. And I think those are the representations that matter because the reality is a lot of the times when you see diabetes represented on TV or even in the media, you see, you know, uh, those newscasts where they have the big bellies and the large sodas. And I'm like, that is so stigmatizing and awful. Or you have these, you know, person who lives with diabetes must get insulin right away or they will die when most of the time you're watching it going, you know, that person probably just needs some Skittles because they're going low and they need sugar. And we're really perpetuating a very dangerous myth by showcasing this because, you know, in the real world, if someone gave you insulin when you were going through a low, you might inadvertently kill that person. So there's all of these things that when we're representing diabetes in the media, we have to be thinking about. And so I loved, I just loved this, like this normal child, this average child, this child that was not singled out for having this was just fantastic, I thought. Oh, I love it. What a good movie. That movie is just good all around. It is. Yeah. I think it's interesting because for me, when I first thought of it, the one that always comes to mind is Babysitter's Club. And I said the same thing when Heather was like, I met this woman and I was like, Babysitter's Club, Babysitter's Club. (laughs) But but as you're talking, it's interesting because it's something, even in the modernized version, because they had a recent series, she hid her disability. She then had a, a, a issue, but then had to reveal herself and it was a whole big thing. But I wonder how how real that feels now or if people do feel like they have to hide that disability from people. Oh, they do. They Mm do. And that's the sad part. Diabetes has become this thing where we look at it like, oh, you did this to yourself, even though we know in the research and scientific community that that's not true. And in the type one community, which is an autoimmune condition, we know for sure that there's nothing that could have been done necessarily to change that. So these representations that people are constantly bombarded with in the media. There was in the diabetes community, people were talking about how they were watching the show Wednesday and everybody's really loving it. And of course they made a diabetes joke in the middle of it and it just kind of ruined it for people. And we don't realize that what happens then is people do hide their diabetes. And so if they have a medical emergency and they need support, people don't know how to support them. Oftentimes people with type one, someone will be like, oh, aren't they drunk? Because they might have that um, experience when they go low where they seem to slur and they seem a little bit off. People may misconstrue what to do and how to help them. But also, it means that they're not necessarily taking care of their diabetes in the best way. And that can lead to long-term complications, which for children transitioning into adulthood, there's been a lot of research about this because often that's when you want to be cool. You don't want to think about diabetes. You don't want to think about all of these things. And you end up not treating your diabetes, which can lead to complications in your 50s which you're not thinking about when you're 19 and off to college or university. So there's all of these factors that when we're talking about diabetes representation, we need to think about the person at the core and what we're making them feel. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Babysitter's Club one because that's the <laughs> what I'm, it's in my mind. But that idea of like wanting to fit in and her and the reason why she was having difficulties because she's eating, eating things that were affecting her diabetes, but she was ignoring the signs because she just wanted to fit in and didn't want to explain why 
Yeah. And the reality is for a lot of people with type one in particular, they want to overcome the myth that they have to be really, um, that they can't eat certain things. And the reality is if you bolus for it, which is when you give yourself a dose of insulin, you can have that birthday cake, you know, maybe not as much as, as, you know, you may want to eat, but you can do these things. And I have tons of friends with type one and we never think about that, what they're eating because they're in this place where they can manage their diabetes effectively so that they can eat the way that they would like and so they can fit in. But that has a certain amount of openness to it. So for example, they have to be able to pull out their kit. They have to be able to test their blood sugar in public. They have to feel comfortable and confident that no one at the table is going to make them feel bad or guilty for doing these things. Now with technology, they can just do it on their little like devices. But there is that sense that you have to have that openness to be able to have that conversation about these things so that you don't feel like your diabetes is going to other you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. What would you like to see more of? I would like to see more regular people with diabetes. Yeah. People who are not superhuman because we see a lot of amazing role models. And I don't mean that those role models, there's anything wrong with the Nick Jonases and the athletes and, and all of those things, but just people with diabetes living happy, effective lives. And I would like to see more representation of what it's actually like to live with diabetes. Because I think because we have turned it into this thing that it's just about sugar and sweets and doesn't look at what it's like to actually have to manage your own pancreas 24-7, what it's like to have to think about how to pay for the medical supplies you need to keep you alive, which is sadly still something that we're thinking about in 2023 um, in the United States in particular, where people are rationing their insulin and people are dying. Like I want to hear about the stories that are in between we hear the worst stories and we hear the best stories, but we miss so much in that messy middle. And some of the best stories lie there in terms of what it's really like day to day to have to live with a condition that is this complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is diabetes distress? Yes. So a lot of people know that people who have diabetes are more at risk for things like depression and anxiety, which is understandable. But over the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion about how there's a really specific type of mental health issue that comes with living with diabetes. And it's for many of the reasons I just spoke about. So things like having to think about this 24-7, there are no vacations from diabetes, there are no um, days off um, in particular, type 1 can be incredibly complicated, even with all the new technologies. Now you've got to think about all these technologies that are attached to you. And so imagine having that all the time. Add to that the stigma. You may be afraid to talk about your diabetes. You may be afraid to test at work because you don't want people you work with to know that you have diabetes. So many of these things, the costs, the constantness leads to this overwhelming sort of mental health condition that's not anxiety and it's not depression. And it's really specific to living with this type of chronic illness. And so researchers have really started to focus on that, which I think is wonderful. I do work with Diabetes Action Canada. And when they asked people with diabetes what they wanted the research to focus on, people would always think cure, but it wasn't. Mental health came up again and again and again, because that's something that helps people right now. And they need that support. And so people like Dr. Michael Vallis, who I talk about in the book from Halifax, he is doing wonderful work helping people understand this more and helping people really feel heard. Because for a long time, people with diabetes, they always knew that it was weighing on them emotionally and mentally, but it was never understood or talked about or brought up to them. And so now we're starting to see healthcare providers understanding that maybe we need to talk about how your emotions are affecting your A1Cs. How is your emotion affecting your blood sugar? Maybe we need to talk about ways to think about reducing some of these stresses for you. Yeah. I have a friend whose child has diabetes. He has a monitor and they have it connected to their smartwatches. So they're constantly checking. And like I think one of the, the couple 
is cho- chose to stay home and stop working so that they could be available to tend to like make sure the child is safe. I'm assuming that's a ripple effect with mental health. That it's not just the person living with it, but maybe the whole family has to adjust. And is there supports for for families as well? I talk about this in the book as well, because so many of the parents of children with diabetes have told me that one of the worst feelings in the world is never knowing that your child is for sure going to wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so they get up all the time to check blood sugars and, you know, feeding them yogurt in the middle of the night because they're asleep, you know, just doing all of these things to try and support their child and this feeling of being like a surrogate pancreas to their child. We all know what it's like when you have children. They're so much a part of you. And so having to support them through this type of chronic illness is really, really hard. And so are there supports? Yes. Are there enough? Probably not. Um, There's definitely organizations like Better Type 1 that are helping um, to support hypoglycemia. Research and things that parents find really, really important. Technologies are starting to make things a little easier, but it's still emotionally really, really hard. And we're still very much in the infancy of the diabetes research in this area. Yeah. So when I was in my journey of like being diagnosed with uh, generalized anxiety disorder, I remember being resistant of taking medication. And the common phrase said all the time was, well, if you were diabetic, you'd take your insulin, right? I am curious, are some people maybe, maybe more specific with type two feel like, oh, I should be able to manage this and I'm not going to take my insulin. Like, is that a thing? Like, I just started thinking about that recently. Like, wait a minute. Are people always taking their insulin even with their if they're diabetic? Yeah, and I mean the reality is with with type one you have to take your insulin or you know it, it could be fatal. Like in excess, not having access to insulin is is really not not good. But when you have type two, there's this mental sort of block for a lot of people. And Diabetes Canada did a wonderful um, program a few years ago called Insulin Starts. And Michael Vallis has also done some work in this area because we know that if people feel like going on insulin is a failure, that they don't do well. So the research tells us that if you feel like you are failing, then you are not going to succeed at doing well with your insulin. But the thing is, diabetes, and especially with type 2 diabetes, it's a progressive condition. In most cases, your pancreas is just going to continue to sort of, you know, chug along and, and you may most likely will need insulin at some point. That doesn't mean you're a failure. That just means that you have the opportunity to continue to have a healthy life. But because we've stigmatized this condition to the point that people feel like they have done it to themselves, they are often very resistant. They want to stay on the pill that they're taking. They want to stay on they're convinced that they can do the lifestyle changes where often there are incredible barriers to the type of lifestyle change you would need to have. And in some cases, it's a genetic predisposition and you're not going to be able to stave it off. So because of the stigma, people actually often do put off um, a medication that could very much help them. That stigma of like not taking insulin because you think you've done the damage to yourself because it, it ties into like our diet culture in our in our society and like shaming people for the way their bodies look like it's all it just it's very frustrating <laughs> that's all i'm saying i'm just frustrated <laughs> that that's like this is gonna make you live longer and make you feel better and what yet we still have to like we're stuck in this mindset of like oh well, if i have just a more willpower i can power through and i can eat the right things and exercise the right way and but that's the same thing with mental health too where exactly. like if i just do x exactly. then i don't need to take medication when actually or well, I'm going to wait and take to take it when it's really bad. And you're yeah. like, no, I think now is really bad. Yeah. So let's go but, start that, now. But that's even the same for like pain management. Like sometimes that, like it's yeah. like we always, we kind of are, our mental, yeah, it seems to be a, a theme that we should be able to just push through and do it with our brains. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me. And again, I, I go back to Dr. Vallis because he was the one who taught me this, but he talks a lot about how if we just set people up for success, when they're diagnosed. But a lot of times there's even medical stigma and weight shaming when you go into the doctor's office and they'll say, you need to lose weight. You're going to get type 2 diabetes if you don't lose weight. And then they they send you on your way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no conversation about, you know, these are some of the tools that we have in our toolbox right now that we can help you with. 
These are some of the things that we can teach you and help you. These are the supports that are available. These are the types of medications that are available. These are the options that are available to you. And I was really excited because Dr. Sean Wharton, who is incredible, he was the lead author on the Obesity Canada guidelines for clinical practice. So the clinical practice guidelines are what doctors use to help them determine how best to treat a condition. So Obesity Canada put out their new guidelines a few years ago. And Dr. Wharton looked at things like systemic racism and how that impacts healthcare. He looked at things like how weight shaming is not helpful. He looked at some of the things that we don't talk about. So when you go into your, you know, family doctor's office and family doctors are awesome. They had to know everything about everything. They're incredible, but they're busy and they don't always know all of the options to help people who may walk into their office. So they're not preparing them that one day they may have to go on insulin. They're not setting that expectation about how diabetes works and how we have these incredible options now, which we didn't have 20 years ago that can help you live a longer and healthier life and that this isn't your fault and that we can help you. So we need to start looking at how do we change from a systemic level Mm -hmm. so that people feel comfortable and confident getting the help that they need that is there for them. Yeah. I I really liked um, in the book, because this really like ties into like, I feel like everything we talk about with mental health, but this is from Dr. Um, Vallis. With chronic disease and chronic conditions, much of what people experience is not their fault. It's not a weakness on their part or pathological on their part. So the focus isn't really on, we've got to make you change. It's about how do we help you adapt to the situation you're in? And I just love that. I know with someone with ADHD, I talk a lot about it's not necess- it's not about changing my brain it's about changing the environment my brain is in and those that adjustment of thinking actually gives me improves my mental health and it makes me feel less shame and so i think you know coming from that approach to me feels like i wish we could all come at it from that approach for well everything really <laughs> we do everything but i thought that was the most <laughs> yes distinct thing that I've heard around chronic illness. I just thought, what a what a wonderful way to think about it. It's hard to spend time with Michael Vallis and not become a Michael Vallis fan because he, when he gets up on stage in front of people at conferences and, and diabetes events, and he talks to them about mental health in the way that he talks to them. I have had so many people who said to me, gosh, I wish he was in practice in my city because no one has ever spoken about diabetes in a way that I felt so heard and seen and understood. And that's a rare quality, but he's doing a lot of work now in helping healthcare providers understand some of these things because that goal is so important that let's help that person feel seen. Let's help that person feel understood. And you know, I don't live with diabetes, but I had the incredible, incredible opportunity to talk to so many people who are willing to share their stories. And they're all different. Everybody has a different story. Everyone has a different experience. But that need to be heard and that feeling that I want people to understand what I'm going through was mm-hmm. very clear throughout. What are some of those more common stigmas that you've witnessed and discovered when you've been talking with people that we should know about? Oh, so many. <laughs> um There are so many things. There are people who will tell you that through their entire lives, regardless of their weight or their health or the type of diabetes that they have, that they have been shamed for what they're eating. They have been shamed for doing this to themselves. Um, I had the distinct pleasure of working with the WHO and their Global Diabetes Compact on a project they did about how people felt they were perceived by the media. And again and again, the people that responded talked about how they had been made to feel shamed. They had made to, been made to feel blamed. And again, we talked about some of the stuff earlier that we see in the media, but there were so many times where, you know, you realize like one of the responses was, I'm so ashamed of this diagnosis that I haven't even told my husband. And you realize that we are not doing a good job of, of removing some of these myths. The idea that this is your fault, the idea that you could just not deal with this if you just had a better lifestyle. This misunderstanding of the real impact that societal barriers have on this situation. So we don't know that living in poverty 
makes you much more susceptible to type 2 diabetes. We don't think about the barriers that people face, that if you are a single mom working an overnight shift at the Amazon warehouse, that you may not have access to the things that you need in order to improve the chances that you will not get type 2 diabetes, that you are more at risk simply because of the situation in which life has placed you. And these are things that are not modifiable factors, but we stigmatize people with this idea that it is their fault. And no matter what type of diabetes you have, I want people to know it is not your fault. There are things you can do to live a healthier life. There are things you can do potentially to decrease your risk. But if it happens... There are so many options, and this is not a time to lay blame. Mm -hmm. You know, leading up to this interview, I was starting to reflect. I've gained weight over the last like COVID years, and I like my cholesterol went up. And then I I have had that fear internally that, oh my gosh, if I continue down this path, I'm going to get diabetes type two. And I, and I felt shame, even though I I'm not even there yet. But that was like the fear that, oh my gosh, look what I've done. And so I it it, it is so prevalent even in like in everyday people, I feel like probably think about this and feel that shame or the potential shame that they could encounter this down the road. I'm like feeling emotional about it. I am so there with you. And I do this for a living. Like I talk about this for a living. And I tell people every day that this isn't your fault. But I had to go on medication during COVID. Lucky me, it brought 30 extra pounds. I had never felt more awful about myself and my body and who I am. And this is the work that I've done for years. I am so passionate about how we speak about this. I have so many people in my life who I love unconditionally who live with diabetes. And yet I was suddenly in this place where this thing that was completely out of my own control had happened to me. And I was so shamed mm -hmm. and I mm. blamed myself so, so, so much. And it's really interesting because I came to see it as a bit of a gift, as weird as that sounds, because suddenly I was in the shoes of people who I talk about. And I'm very conscious that I have not got the lived experience that they do and that I come from the research journalism side of this. But I walk in the shoes of someone with a chronic illness and with a very high risk of type 2 diabetes who suddenly was in a bigger body and feeling all the feels. Mm -hmm. So I understand so, so, so much. And I have cried <laughs> so much over this <laughs> and the conflict that it brings. And then you realize this is why these conversations matter. This yeah. is why we have to stop the diabetes jokes. We have to stop looking at this as something that we can all overcome if we just eat better and exercise more. Because got to tell you, that's not the answer. Mm -hmm. I put a question out on Twitter about, you know, what do you have questions? And from listener J.E. Swainston, she's like, I have so many questions, but I just don't know how to formulate them. Type 2 diabetic here. And in the early years of my diagnosis, been 12 years gone now. I struggled mentally. I still sometimes do. A lot of resentment, self-blame, lots of stuff. It's difficult for me to get my numbers lowered. I still get food shamed. How do I work through the feelings that everyone who isn't an expert on diabetes types 2 seems to have an opinion on how we eat and manage our blood sugar levels? Yeah, and I and I feel that very deeply for you. Um, I interviewed a wonderful expert, um, Joanne Lewis, about this a few years ago for the Diabetes Canada podcast. And she said, we all fear the diabetes police. And, I, and that's something that stayed with me because these are incredibly well-meaning people in our lives who want to talk about how you eat what you eat. And they think that it's helpful. And the reality is it's often not. And I mean, there's times in my life where there are people in my life who have type two and, you know, they're older and they're maybe just eating at, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should say something. And I'm like, no, no, that is a bad instinct because no one ever wants to be shamed or blamed. So we can't always have those conversations. But what I found is that if you have the opportunity to talk to a certified diabetes educator, if you have the opportunity to work with a certified dietitian, people who are really expert in helping with these things, they're not only good at helping you figure out how to eat things that work for you culturally and work for your lifestyle and make you feel good and happy and not like you're on a diet all the time. They can help you with those things, but they can also help you with the language to talk to those people that are going to try and police what you want to eat. Because quite frankly, they're trying to come from a good place, but it's a really big fail. 
And so having that language to say, you know what, I'm working with my diabetes educator and I feel like I'm really comfortable with how I'm eating right now and, and you know, we're good. It's really hard in the moment to say that. And I know because I've had people been like, yeah, you're looking a bit, you know, bigger, Krista, maybe you shouldn't be having that. And you, you feel it like you, you, it's like a gut punch. And especially for people with type one where they, they, <laughs> they can handle themselves, <laughs> they can figure out what they're supposed to eat. They don't need your help. Um, so it, it's just, it's one of those really, really cultural things that we have to try and get beyond that we've made it this thing where it's suddenly our business, what other people are eating. Um, and it's not, and we need to stop. But in the meantime, having the words that can empower you in those situations and those experts can really help you get those. And also, I just want to say to the listener who who wrote that, like, I hear you. I hear this from so many people. I hear it in my own head as I do with my own, um, you know, health issues. You should be as comfortable as possible because we are in a very lucky place right now where there are so many options for people living with type 2 diabetes. We've never had as many options as we do right now. And I hope that in talking to a diabetes educator or a doctor or an endocrinologist who can help, that you'll be able to find those resources because we're lucky now. It sucks that you have diabetes. (laughs) It sucks that you have any health condition, but we are lucky in that we have options now, which we didn't have before. Oh, amazing. Um, how does the use of diabetes medication for things like weight loss impact the diabetes community? That's a big thing happening right now. It was interesting because the New York Times had a really interesting article about how people who were using some of these drugs for weight loss were starting to feel really stigmatized. Um, and again, this is a media thing. Like the reality is there are probably a few famous people who are using this right now. And I think they're using it for reasons that are probably not healthy. Um, and that's a whole other ball game about weight culture and body shaming in the media. But I do think we have to remember, and funny story, the drugs that people are talking about Dan Drucker, who's chapter one in my book, helped to develop uh, in Toronto. So there you go, if you're interested in the research side of those uh, of Ozempic and things like that. But it is one of those things where these drugs are really helpful. They can be very, very helpful for people who are dealing with health issues related to their weight. Because the reality is sometimes if you are living with overweight or obesity, which are awful terms, I know, then you may benefit from some of these treatments. And that's a good thing. Like we really have to look at it from that point of view and stop these stories about how, you know, such and such famous person did it for a movie role because that's one, not sustainable. And two, it really takes away from the fact that these therapies took decades to come to fruition. They are really good type 2 diabetes therapies for many people, they are very, very good for cardioprotective and renal protective things that are very helpful. And so I think, again, the stigmas around them are problematic. And if this is something that you and your medical professional think are good for you, that's great. But if you're using it because you need to lose five pounds, probably not the, the best option. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, mm. That is a good I'm glad that you That's said that. Good Thank answer. you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> good answer, Krista. A plus. <laughs> um, you win. We're done. Um, you win the podcast. I have a question from listener um, Rachel Steller. I would be curious to know about what you think of the emerging research from Newcastle about weight loss and remission. Do you think that'll turn out to be accurate? Do they think age will negate weight loss eventually? So remission research is really interesting and it's really hot right now. And I've spent a lot of time talking to different researchers about remission. The particular study out of England is really fascinating. Diabetes Canada actually just had an update to their clinical practice guidelines based on that. So if you're interested, I did an episode about the the remission stuff. The thing is, it's not for everyone. Um, It is basically 800 calories of soups and shakes, um, a liquid diet that you go on. And you do that for a certain amount of time, and then you go on a nutritionist-based um, program. So I remember sitting there thinking, "There's no way. Like, I'm not. I would never do that." But for some people, that is something that they want to do, and they want to do it in a medically monitored way. And so, five years in, they have a 23% um, are still in remission because they just had their five-year results announced, which is good. But there's that's you know like more than 75% that that aren't. For me, with remission, there are some more holistic options that are being researched right now. John Campbell and Mary Jung at UBC in um, the Okanagan 
are doing some really interesting work that's slightly more holistic, slightly sounds less scary to me, honestly, from my non-scientific background. And I think there's some interest, there's some really interesting work. There's a lot of different remission studies. For me, remission, and, and I'll, I'll give you the personal um, side for me, I don't think remission is for me. So I am glad that we're doing this research, and I'm glad that for some people who fit a very specific um, personality type, who are very, very invested in doing this, that this is something that may become an option for them. And I think that's wonderful. I know as someone who had this sudden weight gain that if I do end up with type 2 diabetes, which is very likely, again, I have a very high genetic disposition to it, then I don't think that that is a road I would take because I know that I am more likely to fall into disordered eating, that I am very concerned about my bone health, which if you yo-yo diet, we know from osteoporosis Canada and different studies that that can be very bad for our bone health. I think lifestyle modification is great. If you can find small wins, things that you think are really helpful, that's awesome. And they can help you a lot in terms of managing your diabetes well and making you feel healthier and better and eating better is great. Exercising more is great. But we also have lots of other options. So if remission which is a good thing, is something that you want to do, great. But just know that it's not for everyone. And the age-based question is actually really interesting because like we talked about, diabetes is thought to be a progressive condition. So you may do really well in remission for a couple of years because you're able to manage it really well, but then you break your leg and you can't exercise or your pancreas, as I said earlier, it just poops out. And that's not a failure. That's a huge success that you managed to do this for a number of years and you managed to make yourself much healthier and you set yourself up for more success with your diabetes management now that you're on a medication. But if we don't tell people that at the very beginning, then they're going to go through this entire process and be like, I failed at the end. And that's not the case. So I think that we still have a lot of work to, to do around the whole remission thing. It's exciting whenever there's new research that you know has this great potential. It's interesting. Um, but we're still very, very far from fully formed, fully fleshed out. And I think that, like I said, if I had to make the decision right now where we're at, not for me, but for other people, awesome. I think it's really important you saying the pancreas will continue to deteriorate and then poop out. Yeah. I just love that phrase. <laughs> like sometimes your pancreas is just tired and it's not working really well and it needs support. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a failure of you. But it, it is very similar. And again, I am not a medical doctor. I just talk to them all yeah. the time. So <laughs> I always say, talk to the person who is the medical support that you have, who is your healthcare provider. Talk to the incredible certified diabetes educators that are available. Um, we're lucky in Canada, we've access to some of the best in the world and they know all of these things and they can help you find things that fit into your lifestyle. But the idea that you can stave this off forever if you are just the best person and you do all the right things. That's not good for anyone's mental health. It wouldn't be good for mine. So it's looking at how can I work with my healthcare team to find the option that works for me? And if remission is something that you want to try, making sure you have a really good healthcare team that is up to date on all of the research and all of the latest things and all of the guideline updates so that you're not going in and feeling like at the end of this, you've made a giant mistake and, and now you're you're in a loop you can't get out of. You mentioned exercise. I was curious about how what the relationship is between exercise and diabetes. Oh, yeah. Well, exercise and diabetes is super interesting. And that chapter is actually about Dr. Michael Riddell and Dr. Desi Zarieva, who is his trainee, who is now at uh, Stanford. So she's no longer a trainee. She's definitely <laughs> a rock star in her own uh, right. But they're both people who live with type 1 diabetes and who were really interested. And Desi was actually an MMA fighter. She was on Team Canada for um, Taekwondo. She's just incredible. She's just incredible. And she was diagnosed with type 1 when she was eight years old. And Mike is just phenomenal. He's a researcher at York University, one of the best in the world in terms of um, people who want to be athletes, like professional athletes or endurance athletes, and live with type 1. But one of the things I will tell you about diabetes and exercise is that people haven't studied it enough. Like We're still doing so much work. We know that exercise is good for us. But we're learning like Mary Jung at UBC has been doing this wonderful program with the YWCA, which is like these short bursts of exercise 
finding ways that we can make exercise fun and easy and accessible. So those are all things that are part of the research right now, getting people moving and active. So maybe not necessarily like Mike and Desi and being like these really like high level performance athletes, but their work is really important because one of the things that people don't know is that if you're on a continuous glucose monitor, if you're using an insulin pump and you're doing exercise, sometimes the pump isn't catching up in time. So these are things that people with diabetes really need to be aware of, and that kind of research is really helpful because, um, as people with diabetes will tell you, the uh, one day you do exercise and your blood sugar does X. The next day you do exercise could be the exact same exercise and your blood sugar does Y. <laughs> so it's a complicated situation, and it's something where I think that uh, – there's so much research happening and, and it's such an interesting topic. So it's also really good, I find, for my mental health doing a lot of exercise. So it's something that I love. I just wanted to give a shout out to a Peloton instructor, Robin Arzon, who <laughs> yes, living with type, type 1, she wears like it's a certain because that's is that the glucose the CGM, yeah. The glucose monitor. That's what that is. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't know what it was. And I was like, what is she wearing on her arm? Oh, maybe <laughs> it's a heart rate monitor. And then I did research to find out what, what was Robin wearing. She is like the top a uh, fitness person at Peloton. She is people who use Peloton see her all the time and she's out there doing her thing with type one. Yeah. There are amazing athletes with type one. Um, I always say though, cause I don't want to scare you. You do not have to be like a high level athlete. If you live with diabetes, <laughs> going for a walk is totally fine. Doing any type of exercise will help. And this is something that I heard from people with diabetes that sometimes like you see these like amazing role models and they are amazing role models, but you also feel that little bit of like, oh my God, do I have to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I can't live up to that. So, you know, like reminding to reminding people that, yeah, you, you don't have to do that. So. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting what you said, Sarah, about like looking up the monitor because I was talking about that with a director and a producer and the producer's partner has type 1 diabetes. The uh, director was like, actually, what a great thing that I can do because there are a lot of actors who actually have these monitors and we cover them up. Well, why can't we just have them showing? And then just that's it. That character just happens to have diabetes and it doesn't have to be a part of the storyline. It just is something um, that someone is living with and having that representation without there being any kind of stigma or discussion around just existing, I think would be really instrumental. So um, everyone listening, if you are a director <laughs> and you have the opportunity um, with an actor who has diabetes to just be freely themselves in that capacity while acting in a different role, that would be amazing. Yeah, so it, just FYI, it. directors. <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst because I always like run into people wearing CGMs or insulin pumps and I start asking them questions because I'm so interested. I'm like, well, what pump do you have? And like, you know, how do you like it? And, and why do you like it? And I don't have diabetes. And I always feel very conscious of that. Like I want to make sure I don't speak for the community, but I also, because I've had this incredible opportunity in my life to know so many people with diabetes, I have so much interest and I just feel like if more people knew and understood and could have just conversations about it in a normal way that, you know, maybe people would feel far less stigmatized. I hope so, because to me, um, the people in my life with diabetes are all incredible and, you know, and I wish people understood what they were going through more because some of the things they go through are really, really not what you would anticipate. And they, they're really awful. Um, for example, and you had asked about exercise. I'm just going to bring this up because Recently, one of the researchers, Dr. Jane Yardley um, in Alberta, she started researching diabetes and um, exercise, but in women. And women all said, oh, well, yeah, but during my period, everything changes. My blood sugars go bonkers and everything is out of whack and, and it's all different. But no one was studying this mm -hmm. because we don't study things necessarily in women. <laughs> And her research, when I started talking about it, it was one of the most popular episodes that I'd done because people were so excited that, you know, like things like she had to find a certain number of research subjects that weren't on birth control. If you live with type 1 diabetes, you were probably, and you're a woman, you were probably on birth control because getting pregnant with type 1 diabetes is extremely stressful. And it is something that you want to plan um, there's actually a part in my book where I talk about the mental health aspects of what it's like to have a pregnancy where your blood sugar control can be the difference between your child having a birth defect and not having a birth defect and the mental weight of oh, that. So, oh my gosh. Um, so these are things like trying to find research subjects for a study on exercise and menstruation 
finding people that were women that were not on birth control was very hard because of this. But no one talks about these things. And again, there's these stigmas around, um, I mean, period shame, good Lord, that we add on top of living with diabetes. And so we don't have this wealth of information around how to help people best or how to help people manage their exercise when they're living with type one and they're dealing with the changes of menstruation. So this research, and this is, I think, why I find this work so satisfying and so fascinating is like talking to people like Jane Yardley who are doing that research and making such an enormous difference in the lives of women. It's amazing. Hopefully, as we change, and I'm so grateful for the diverse group of people that you covered in your book, that also comes change in who who is at the center of the research, which is really amazing. I was lucky. I was able to re- to talk about the research on diabetes and homelessness, the research on diabetes in women, and the connections between things like PCOS and diabetes, and and so many things that we don't think about. And you know, before we end this, I do want to shout out though because. Because I don't live with diabetes, I always feel awkward talking about the experience of someone with diabetes, but I've had the pleasure of talking to so many people. But if anyone is interested in an amazing resource, um, Miss Diabetes does a graphic um, comic online about what it's like to live with diabetes and the mental health stress. So I definitely want to make sure I shout out her work. It's incredible. And if you want to see a graphic representation of what it's like to live with diabetes, she's amazing. Well, on that note, what other resources would you recommend to our listeners? (laughs) There's lots of things that are out there. I think really the lived voices are going to be great, but everybody's experience is different. Um, I think that there's not enough representation of type two. So you probably will hear a lot of, get a lot of type one, but not as much type two, but Diabetes Canada, Diabetes Action Canada, JDRF, they're all doing things related to mental health and they're all helping to create supports beyond type one. There's so many organizations right now that are really shifting the focus to diabetes and mental health. And I think that so many people with diabetes are going to find that those resources are very, very helpful. And if you have a healthcare provider who is maybe not so understanding and you can find a gentle way to perhaps shift them over and send them some of the resources from, you know, Michael Vallis or Sean Wharton or some of the people looking at some of the stigma and the ways that we can overcome them, those are also wonderful resources. And can you um, tell people about your podcast and where they can find you online? (laughs) So I host a number of podcasts, but the one that I'm best known for is the Diabetes Canada podcast, which is available anywhere you get your podcast. Um, I also do a Diabetes Action Canada podcast called Actions on Diabetes and an awesome series with UBC called From Beta Cells to Bicycles. So if you're interested in diabetes, there are lots of different options there to listen to me talk about it. (laughs) Uh, There is also my book, which is available now um, called Beyond Banting, and it is available anywhere you get books. And um, you can find me online. I'm at crystalam.com. I'm super active on Twitter at crystalamcoms. Elon is not my favorite person right now, but <laughs> I believe very strongly that good science needs to be in bad spaces. So I remain there. Um, but I'm also doing a lot of work on LinkedIn as well. Right Amazing. Now. Thank you so much, Crystal, for taking the time today to join us. We really appreciate this conversation. I really think that you know, for myself, I didn't really think about the impact of mental health and diabetes and like how much that can affect you in so many parts of your life. And so we're really grateful for you um, to tell us all about that and to give us kind of the gateway into more information and more research. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for doing this episode because I think that for people living with diabetes, we don't talk about this enough. And I think it's something that the research is getting way better and I hope it will support even more people with the condition. Well, you have a new fan here. I'm going to listen to all your podcasts. This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love Krista. <laughs> I just, Krista and I are going to be best friends. No, now. I want to be okay. her best friend. Oh, no, no mind. <laughs> I am her best friend. You cannot steal her like you stole my new works jumpsuits. Mm. Mm, uh, <laughs> I'm <in> caught. <laughs> No, it's like our brand, Heather. I'm allowed. It's like we're do- unified. It was my brand. It's, it's fine. Our it's our brand. brand now. Unified. Can I tell you oh. something that I... Yeah, tell me. I, I talked to my friend who is the one who taught me about branding yourself. And I said, yeah, my sister started wearing that. She's like, that is not allowed. You're not supposed to steal someone else's brand. <laughs> she I, was very unhappy. Wow. <laughs> I know. I was like, it's okay. She's like, no, it's not. I was like, oh. Now, she, now I have a, a hater in, in the mix. I have a- she doesn't hate you. She just hates the idea of the brand stealing. I wanted to 
to share something that I found because for some reason I decided to like look back at my first Gmail account that I had and I wanted to see like what my last like what my very first email is still still there like I'm sure I deleted some stuff but I have I'm like notorious for not deleting my emails so it was you have been invited to contribute to Heather Taylor's blog and this is what the blog was called (laughs) the Taylor sister initiative do you remember this Yes, it was where Sarah would upload photos and then I'd write poems yeah, about the photos. Yeah, and I like, I saw it and I was like, oh, and I got really like sentimental and I was like, we're doing it now. We're like really doing something as the Taylor, yeah. the Taylor sisters. And it just oh, made me feel so special. I think that's what you kind of said too. Like we didn't talk about this, but we got to be on the radio and he calls us the Taylor sisters. And so we'd always talked about this idea of like being the Taylor sisters. And I think it was just nice that I think this is is for us the best way to... Like, I mean, we do obviously like create things and have created things together, but this feels like we're equally bringing our voices Mm -hmm. into it in a way that's different from like a relationship with like a writer, director and editor, which is still like, especially in the doc side, like I I always say to people, my sister's genius, I'll send her like, here's this, all this stuff and here's the story I want to tell. And then she's like, here it is. And that like first draft, I cry (laughs) and I'm like, okay, obviously she's amazing at this type of storytelling. But again, it's a different type of relationship than this, which is much more like we are a partnership. We're co-hosting together. Like, yeah, we're together. Yeah, we're co-hosts and co-producers. I just need to make note of the date that this email was sent. November 2nd, 2009. I mean, that was a while ago when we were like, what, 10? <laughs> we were just we're little babies. Just little babas. You know, we've been, well, we've been talking about being the Taylor sisters since I started film school. Like, it's just, we've been talking Yeah, about we've been it. working together on tons of things. Yeah. We've worked together on like web series and docs and shorts and like poetry and film and pictures and photos. I think I was used a poem of mine in one of your school things around um, abortion. Yeah, you were like, in, so. you were in my yeah, I was in it. documentary about as like the reenactments. <laughs> you were in my, re- my student documentary about abortion, which is like, again, like thinking back to that, I should, it's not a good doc because it was like, I was just learning, but no, I should please. find it. <laughs> <laughs> it's Okay. I just want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Marcy. Um, She reached out and she said, I'm thoroughly enjoying your podcast. It helps me when I'm driving around the city and supporting families in need or when I'm traveling throughout the province. And so she works with this amazing organization called Mamas for Mamas, where it's mamas helping other mamas. And uh, she runs the Edmonton chapter and they're celebrating, soon celebrating their one year anniversary. And they've, they have what they call is a karma market. People, organizations donate diapers, formula, clothes, all sorts of things for moms in need. And, and it's not just for babies. They donate clothing and shoes and all this stuff. And so she's just doing amazing work in the city. And, um, I just wanted to give her a shout out because she's a, she loves listening to the podcast and I think she does some really, really great work. So that sounds awesome. So it was really amazing. I got to go to Tribeca. Um, we had our premiere for you feeling this on the 15th of June and it will come out on the 27th of June. So by the time you hear this podcast, our podcast, you feeling this will be live, which I'm really excited about, but it was really amazing because the creator, James Kim created this uh, visual that went with it. It was like these long, long takes and people were looking to see, is the clock on the stove going to change? And it was really cool, but it kept people's interest visually while listening and immersing yourself in this world. And it was just actually one of the most brilliant ways for them to have done this as a podcast because it wasn't, it was just really gentle. And then you got to like really immerse yourself. And I think what was nice is that he also, um, he did three full episodes and then he did clips of the other three episodes of people who were there. So being really inclusive of people who could be there for the opening and including us. And then we got to do a panel discussion afterwards and really talk about the way that we think about audio. So it was super cool. But also on the flip side, I was like walking 20,000 steps a day because New York and doing all these things. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of tax on your brain and body when you don't do that on a regular basis and being around so many people. So a reminder that when you are doing those types of things to also give yourself space for breaks for your brain. Yeah. So just FYI, always learning, mm-hmm. always reminding myself that I am not an invincible person, that <laughs> I do need time off. Yes. Anyways, thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. 
You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye. Bye.